Amen. Well, it's nice to see you all. And, uh, well, I will warn you, today might get a bit political in the middle, so um, I'm sorry. Uh, politics and religion. <laughs> anyway, so if, we, um, if you turn to Isaiah 60, verse 21, I'm doing part two to what I did last week, which was called Possessing the Land. And uh, last week we looked at the importance of a local church spiritually and, uh, you know, and how we can take back the land through things, just simple things like prayer and worship and our lifestyle, etc. And, uh, and today I'm going to talk about a bit more practical stuff about the importance of church as well. So Isaiah 60 uh, verse 21 says, And thy people shall be all just. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hand to glorify me. We looked at the first half of the verse last week about uh, how God's people will be just. We looked about how they inherit the land and what that means, both for Israel and for Christians. And today we're looking at the second half of this verse. So the branch of my planting. Now, when a farmer... Any farmers here today? Yeah, there's one at the back. So when a farmer plants a seed, okay, this is what he doesn't do. I'm going to go out into my various hectares and I'm just going to grow an individual seed. So I grow a nice little ear of corn or a nice little ear of barley and, and that's it. Okay, because that would be stupid, right? So when you grow, when you sow seed in a field, it's not just have little individual bits coming together, but a massive quantity and just the purpose of it. And also, not only that, but certain breeds of plants need to be grown in mass so that they can cross-pollinate with each other. So like sweet corn. I never knew this, but you know, this is the sort of thing that you learn when you have a farm or when you work on a farm, is that sweet corn, you've got to grow it in rows in like a square so that it can cross-pollinate itself, so it can grow healthy, etc. I was like, wow, who knew, right? Well, obviously somebody did, but I didn't. But that's importance of growing things. Now, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46, it says, The spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. But Western Christianity is always taught it the other way around. No, no, no. It's first the spiritual, then the natural. But that's not what the Scriptures teach us. The Scriptures teach us that it's first the natural, then the spiritual. What does that mean? It means that the natural world teaches us things pertaining to the spiritual world. Okay? So if you want to understand spiritual principles, you just need to open our eyes and have a look around at the natural world to see how things function naturally so that you can understand how things operate and function spiritually. Easy, right? That's why Jesus used a lot of farming metaphors in his uh, preaching, because it was a simple illustration to illustrate profound kingdom truths. Okay, So, Romans 1.20 says, For from the creation of the world, the invisible things, not the visible, the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse, okay? I know there's a God exists. When I turn over in my bed in the morning and see myself in the mirror, sorry, not that side, when I turn over in my bed in the morning and I see my wife, I know that there is a God. I know. You know, I just look at her and it's like this wonderful created being and uh, I just know that there's a God. Because it's like, you know, this is, this is the truth. If we did really evolve, right? Okay, you've seen some really horrendous, like, I've seen some like, you know, crazy moves over the years. But if we really did evolve, right, there'd be some of us would have like three heads, one with the head of a cat and a dog or something. You know, someone would be, have like a body of a snail or something like that. And trust me, you wouldn't want to marry them. 
All right. The fact that the fact that we have people that look like us, that look beautiful, that are wonderfully designed, wonderfully and fearfully designed, tells me that there is a Creator God. All right. We're not these kind of weird semi-evolved type blobs that are walking around. All right. Because I just don't. I just don't believe in that. But anyway, back to my point. My point is that farmers. <laughs> they don't sow individual seeds. They grow them in abundance. And so, therefore, if that's true of the natural, then why in the spiritual? Now, I come across this a lot. I see this on social media. Uh, I get, I, I, I've come across some people, and, I, and I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. That some people that even claim to be apostolic, they go around, they get people saved and, uh, and made, this, made into disciples, and they baptize them, and that's it. They don't put them into a church. They don't put them into a wider congregation. And it's like, well, hang on. If you want to call yourself an apostle, an apostle is someone that goes around, plants churches, creates a church, then builds a leadership structure and moves on and does it again and again and again or oversees multiple lots of church plants. That's partly what the apostolic is. And yet I see this all the time and I see this kind of endemic in Western Christianity where it's all about me, myself, I, my quiet time, my personal Jesus, my personal Savior. And there's truth to that, but at the same time, that's not what Scripture talks about. The context of Christianity is always in context of the community, always in context of the church. But then the church is a dirty word, isn't it, in some circles these days? And fair enough, it is in some, in some respects. So the branch of God's planting is the church. And when we look at various parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, it was always in the context of growth. So take the parable of dough and, and yeast in the dough, okay? Any bread makers here today? Two? Okay, right. Obviously, bread making's out of fashion. You need to break bread. It's great stuff. But anyway, you get some, get some dough and you put some leaven into the dough and, and the, the leaven infects the dough. It's like, yes, look at this. And it goes throughout the whole dough and fills it with air. And it makes it, causes it to rise and turns into this lovely loaf of bread, or at least it should do, rather than that horrible flat um, stuff that you can eat that just, I don't know, tastes horrible. The point is, is that the kingdom of God is supposed to infect. It's supposed to grow. It's supposed to increase. And it creates air. It creates pneuma, which is Greek for, uh, which is the Greek for the equivalent of the, of the Hebrew, which is ruach, which is breath and life. The church is supposed to bring life to communities. It's supposed to bring air to the people, of, to the people around us. And it's supposed to grow and permeate. Then we get the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay. Now, again, I don't know what your mental image is of this, but sometimes people think that the parable of the wheat and the tares is that, oh, at the end of the age, there's hardly any wheat left in that field at all. It's mostly just tares. That's not what the parable says. It says that the two will grow side by side, which shows that the righteous will flourish and grow more righteous at the end of the day, and the wicked will grow more wicked at the end of the day. But I see a field that, at the very least, is probably, I don't know, 50-50 or conservatively 70-30 of the crop. Okay, so I see a God of multiplication. I see the kingdom of God advancing in the end of days. And then, of course, we have the parable of the dragnet. So this is a big net that's cast out into the water, and it, and it, and it finds all these fish, and it's pulled out. And some of the bad ones, they're the ones that are thrown away, but the majority of the fish are kept. Again, this is a picture of the kingdom of heaven towards the end of the age. From the beginning, God made it clear in Genesis 2.18, it is not good. I repeat, it is not good for man to live alone. Amen? 
Hallelujah. So he gave him woman. Hallelujah. Why is that funny? Okay, so anyway. So the Lord God also said it is not good for man to be alone. And the idea of Christians being separated and not a part of a local community or local community of believers is just completely alien to the scriptures. Now, the word church or congregation uh, comes from a Greek word, I'm sure you all know this, which is ekklesia. Now, the word ekklesia is actually not a Christian word, bless you, but it's not a Christian word, but a secular word, okay? What does that mean? It means it comes from the, the world around, like the word gospel was actually initially a secular word, not a Christian word. So the word ekklesia is talking about a group of people that, uh, that come together to create a political assembly, to gather together, okay? So that was the point of it. Uh, an ecclesia was people coming together to form a unit to do something. And so then Paul takes this same word and uses it in the context of the church. Take individuals and they gather and they congregate together to form an ecclesia, which is a community of believers. Where people say, I don't have to be go to church to be a Christian. They don't know what they're talking about because by definition of a being a Christian, you need to be in a local church. Amen. And what is the church? The church is the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Do you know what happens to sheep when they're taken away from the flock and they spend too much, too much time by themselves? They go feral. They go wild. And of course, you know, I, need to, I need, do need to clarify this and balance this out in saying that when I go around the country and I do various talks and things, I, I meet a lot of Christians that, that are basically disenfranchised from their local church because we have a problem in this nation, especially with, in rural areas where most of your churches are going to be like a Methodist or a C of E um, church. And those churches have all moved to the left big time. So they're very much into woke ideology. They're very much into critical race theory uh, and all of these kind of things that's crept into our theology. And all of a sudden, these basic Bible-believing Christians, who we would call center-left, center-center-right, are, are now disenfranchised. They're like, I don't belong with this community. I don't believe these guys are standing up for biblical values anymore, find themselves out the door. And so they're in a difficult place. And I meet quite a lot of these people, and they're, they're having just to set up their own little home groups and fellowships, basically to survive as Christians, because for the most part, Christendom has disenfranchised them because they're simply not prepared to preach the Bible anymore. And that, my, my friends, is utterly, utterly awful. It says in Titus 3... He said, if anyone promotes sects in the church, warn him once and then a second time. If he still continues, break with him, knowing that such a person is mis misled and sinful and stands self-condemned. So I understand that scriptures like, well, you know, if you, if you want to cause a breakaway group, it can be deemed as a negative thing. But unfortunately, we're in a situation in the church now where for some people, there is no choice. They have to come out of mainstream uh, Christianity because the churches have become so politicized. And we do have a problem in this nation right now. We have a very real political issue in this nation. And I, quite frankly, I don't know if many people are waking up to what's going on in your streets. So I'll give you an example. In Ireland, and the press won't tell you exactly who did this, but in Ireland, somebody stabbed some children uh, earlier this week. And then there was riots on the streets. 
But the backstory to this, which you and I don't know about, is that the, 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 the Irish have been saying, look, multiculturalism is causing massive problems to our society, and we're frightened to go down the streets, we're frightened to go down into town anymore. And when something like this happened, and it's allegedly it was one of the Muslim community probably that actually did the damage, and that's why people got so angry, and that's why they protested in the way they did. Now, I don't condone violence in any shape or form, but this is what's going on, and then the media portrays them as fundamental right, extreme right-wing people. Now, these are normal people that have been speaking to their politicians, and they've been speaking to local government and speaking to the police, and the police are ignoring them, the government are ignoring them, because it's politically incorrect to even talk about things like immigration in our nation. And I think this is the problem, and this is the problem that I, I, I see that I, I just don't think many Christians are getting the seasons and the times in which we're living in. We are at a tipping point where we are seeing, now you might think, Chris, this is a bit extreme. It really isn't. You are seeing, you're at the tipping point of the demise of Western civilization. Because you see, what we don't remember about Western civilization is where it came from. So at the collapse of the Roman Empire in Great Britain, we kind of regressed from the technology that Romans gave us. We just regressed. We went back into tribalism again. And if it wasn't for Christianity, Christianity was what brought this nation out of the mire. And through that, and through the development of law and rule and order and common law, then slowly but surely, and with the introduction of theory, theology such as the Imago Dei, which is man is made in the image of God, it meant men and women were given rights. It meant women could choose who they wanted to marry. It meant women could um, in, receive inheritance rights, etc., when it was passed on. And then slowly but surely, as, as the culture grew and the, the rule of law traveled over this nation and prosperity started to come to this nation. Then from that, from that foundation of those Judeo-Christian order, then came things like music, culture, art, all of these things. Uh, and then obviously intellectualism, science, and all that came through that, and innovation and industry. But the backbone of Britain and the backbone of Western civilization comes from Christianity. Now, there are a lot of atheists who are intellectual atheists, and they all, or most of them, concede that this nation, that if you take Christianity out of the equation, this nation will not be what it is. And we are now at a tipping point where you're getting people, you're getting local councils and councils all around the world, around the nation, sorry, trying to say, you can't have Christmas parties anymore. We're having people trying to take Christ out of Christmas. We are trying to downplay our own religion. We're trying to downplay our own history. And because of this liberal ideology, which states that white man is essentially born a racist and is white supremacist and is guilty of colonization and therefore genocide, and this is the nonsense that's being spewed out by the intellectual terrorists at our colleges and our universities to the young people, and this is what's coming into the theology in the Church of England. When you have this kind of stuff that says white man is bad, and that when you have in the Church of England, they did, a, they did this um, a task force that basically said that Christian theology is essentially a white man's religion and is thus racist, and thus you need to change your theology. And so now they're decolonizing their theology. What does that mean? It means you take everything to do with white people and the, and the influence and the importance of white people out. And we airbrush it out of existence. 
That means music, culture, arts, theology. This is what's going on right now. And, the, and most Christians are not aware of this. Most Christians don't even care. Okay? And so much people are in this and they just do not see what's going on in their own nation. This is not just going on in the church. This is going on in your political system. You have a conservative party who are basically liberal. You have a Labour party who are basically liberal. You have a liberal party. They do what they say on the tin. You have an, a, a Green party that are liberal. You have no one standing anymore for centrist politics center-left, centrist, and centrist-right. And it's not right. And this nation, if we don't do something, if we don't start praying for this nation, if we don't act for this nation, if we don't do something for this nation, this nation's done. I mean, I'm being honest with you. This nation is finished. And this is why as a church, locally and as Christians, we have got to do our part. But it means now, you see, as Christians, yes, politics and religion generally don't mix. But unfortunately, politics has come to our door and is banging on your door and it says, you need to sort this out. Because if people don't start speaking, if people don't start doing something, this nation is going down the pan. Western civilization, we know, is literally on a tipping point. You've got to do something. How do we do something? That means Christians have to get involved in politics. It means Christians have to start saying. It means Christians have to start praying. This morning I just joined, because I've got to put my, 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 my mouth where, well, the money where my mouth is, I've joined the Reform Party because they're the only party, that, and I'm not trying to get political broadcast here, it's the only party that are actually talking about things that need to be dealt with. Because as a Christian, I cannot see my nation go down the pan. As a Christian, I cannot see this liberalisation which is going to rip out the guts of my own historicity to my own nation and take it out and flush it down the pan because it's just inconvenient to their ideologies. I'm not going to allow them to flush down the pan the theology and the greatness of things like the Church of England and what they've done for us as a nation. I am not going to allow it. Now, I'm just one man, but I'm going to stand in the gap and do what I can do because I love my nation. I love this nation in the name of Jesus. And you know what? Jesus loves this nation. But of course, we're politically uh, motivated now. So much so, it's like, well, you, you can't really say as a Christian you love your nation because we're of a kingdom that's not of this world. No, but I'm born here. And as, as Joseph, he was sent to Egypt. Why was he sent to, G to Egypt? To protect the people of Israel. Why was Esther married to a pagan king? Esther had to sleep with a pagan king. Why did she have to do that? to save the people of Israel, okay? Why was Daniel sent into captivity? Why did Daniel get made a eunuch and have to serve under the most despotic evil king of all time? For the sake of Israel. And so for the sake of Christianity in this nation, for the sake of the kingdom of God in this nation, we have to do something and we have to do something now. So when it comes to the church, I'm just going to spend a few minutes about the, um, the theology of church. Because we all have various ideas about what church is, don't we? I like church, but I don't think church is this, and I don't think I think it is, and I don't think this is. Well, there are two things, or several things, but two things for the, for the moment. Is there's the church visible and the church invisible. Now, the church invisible is what God sees. He sees all the believers all over the world instantly at any one space and moment in space and time. So he sees everyone. He also sees within, his, within the institutional church those who are truly believers and those who are truly not. We can't necessarily discern that so, so easily. 
And then, of course, the visible church is this. Hello, visible church. Have a look around. There she is, the visible church. Okay, so you can see them. You're a part of a local community. But you see, it's so easy to assume that everybody's saved, isn't it? But you might get someone who comes to your local church that really genuinely loves God, does stuff for God, prays to God, but isn't even born again. You think, well, how could that be? Well, we see an example of this in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. It says, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of that which is called the Italian band. That's not a rock band, by the way. It's to do with uh, a bunch of soldiers. And he was a religious man and fearing God with all his house, giving much alms to the people and always praying to God. So here's a man who loved God, gave money, um, did good works of charity, brought up his, his household were, were, were in the faith and stuff. Yet they weren't, as we would call, born again. And that's why Peter had to go to the house and tell them, you know, the true way and the gospel and stuff. And then they got, then they became saved. But, you know, people, some people say, yes, yeah, I believe in God. Well, you believe in God. Well, okay, does, what does that mean? James 2.19 says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe in that. Okay, so you say you have faith in God. Good, man, that's entry level. You need to kind of up your game a little bit from that because even the devil can do that. Hallelujah. So then there's another aspect to churches, and there's, there's two types of church here. There's the church militant, also known as the church pilgrim, and the church triumphant. So the church militant, that's us lot. We are down here on the ground. And why are we called church militant? Because we have to wrestle against powers and principalities and, and, and heavenly forces. We have to wrestle with, with sin and darkness in our nation and around us, etc. We have to fight. We have to fight. And do you know what? If you, anyone here go to the gym? Right, you need to go to the gym. There's, for anyone watching this on TV, no one put their hand up apart from one guy over there, right? You need to go to the gym, everybody. Right, anyway, but anyway, when you go to the gym, if you want to like, get big arms, it's called resistance training. So as you get resistance and you keep pulling on that weight, in time your muscles get used to the resistance and they get bigger. And guess what, church? God wants a powerful church. That means you have to get used to being resisted. All right, Resistance is essential for you to become strong in faith. But we're like, I don't want resistance. I just want a nice, easy Christian life. No, God is saying the best thing that could happen to you is to, foot, is to endure resistance. So as you are resisting, you're going, ah, ah. And then suddenly over weeks, your chest is going out. And you're getting big arms and big shoulders. And you're, woo, yeah. That's what God wants to do for his church. Okay, To get strong, you need to be resisted. Amen? Two people said amen. Amen? Amen. That's right. Hallelujah. What am I saying amen to? Hallelujah. So, and it's also known the church militant as the church pilgrim. I love that term because, as I said last week, a pilgrimage is not about just the destination. It's about the journey. You know, it's about it's the whole route and preparing yourself and getting yourself ready so that when you get to the destination, you can appreciate it in all its wonder. Hallelujah. And then we come to the church triumphant. You know where they are? They're in heaven. That's right. Because they've made it. They've done their bit. They resisted. Some even unto death. And they made it. And they are now in glory. Now they're the church triumphant. But do not think that they're up in heaven, sat on a cloud, doing nothing like a lot of the Christians do on the earth. Okay. They're up there now. And according to Revelation 5, 7, and 8, it says the saints are up there praying. 
They're, they've got work. They're just because they're in heaven doesn't mean they can just rest around all day and just kick cans and go, what shall I do today? They've got work to do, hallelujah. And so they are operating in their priestly ministry before their high priest, which is Jesus, hallelujah. All right, so you've got that to look forward to. <laughs> My wife, she's like so worn out sometimes. She's like, I don't want to go to heaven and have to do some more work. I just, just want to have a rest, you know. <laughs> hallelujah. Anyway. And so the church, back to that scripture in Isaiah, it says that the church, well, it says that we are the work of his hands and we're there to glorify him. So what does it mean to glorify God? Uh, in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. So the church is to manifest the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. What's the kingdom of God? I don't know. Well, let's have a look at what the kingdom of God is because often when we, we come out with these big buzz buzzwords, we don't actually really know what it is that we're talking about. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, several things. Firstly, it is the rule of Jesus Christ in heaven and on the earth. It is also about the blessings and the advantages that flow from that relationship with that king into our lives. Okay, um, We are his church and are subjects to that kingdom. I'm just going to take my coat off and get hot here. All right. Here's the thing. The church isn't the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God. The church is the people, that it, which is the body of Christ, that expresses the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God. Let me explain. If, say, for example, uh, Portsmouth was, was uh, let's just, just you know, go to fantasy land for a minute. Let's just say Portsmouth, right, was uh, run by a beautiful, wonderful king, and he had a little kingdom that reigned and ruled over Portsmouth. And I'm like, I want to go and live in Portsmouth now. So I go and move to Portsmouth. Now, to come into that kingdom, I have to live by the laws and the standards according to his rule and authority over Portsmouth, okay? And so the, the kingdom of that king is not me as a people or as a people group, but the kingdom of that king is as, as we work out his rule and his laws and his dictates in our everyday lives. And that's what it is with Christians. So Christians are not the kingdom of God, but Christians manifest the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, you know, don't look here, don't look there. The kingdom of God is within you. Amen? Because it's talking about the rule and reign of Christ upon the earth. However, there is coming a day, praise God. Yes, Jesus is coming back. Amen? And so when he comes back, he's bringing the fullness of the rule and the reign of God Almighty that is going on in heaven right now, and he will bring it to the earth and subjugate all kingdoms to him. So every time we pray that lovely Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when you're praying that, you're asking God to take little old you and take the little churches all over the nations and to express them to express the rule, the governance, and the kingdom of God around us. Amen? But it also means when you're praying it, you're praying ultimately to the rule and reign of God on the earth when Jesus returns. Because you see, right now, God the Father is on Mount Zion, Hebrews 12.22, and he's ruling over the new Jerusalem, over the promised land, and over the nations. And when Jesus returns, guess where he's going to rule and reign from? Mount Zion, 
over Jerusalem, over the promised land, over the nations. So that God's will as it's being done in heaven will be done on the earth, ultimately through Jesus. Isn't that exciting? Hallelujah. So anyway, bringing this sermon back full circle to where we started last week. Isaiah 60, 21, your people will be upright. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoot of my own planting, the work of my hands to manifest my glory. So how do we possess the land? So we possess the land by being a manifestation of the kingdom of God in our lives as a church, in our lives, in our families, and also wherever we are individually in our workplaces and things around us, that we are manifesting the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means you're nice to people that don't deserve to be you nice. Be uh, It means be nice to people that don't deserve you to be nice. It means being kind, showing the love of God, the compassion of God, all sorts of things like that. It says we also take the land by being countercultural, not being culturally relevant. Okay, a culturally relevant church normally has to concede to uh, fudge certain things with its doctrine. But a culturally relevant church historically has always been the church when she's been at her best. When the nations say, no, you can't do that and that's not how we do things. And the church is like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're going to do it God's way. One good example of counterculturalism uh, is back in the days of the Romans, there was a plague that infected all throughout the, the known world at the time. Okay, the Romans were like, stay at home, lock yourselves in, don't go out because you'll get sick and you'll go and you'll all die. The Christians are like, well, we know where we're going to go when we die, so we're going to go out there and help the sick. And if we die, so we gain, we gain by going to heaven, whatever. That spoke to the Roman Empire so powerfully that it's even written in the annals of history about some certain Roman emperors were, were marveling at Christians because they were countercultural, because they knew about their inheritance, they knew where they were going. People want to see brave women. People want to see brave men in this nation again. People don't want weak, wishy-washy, evangelifish Christians. They want to see people with a backbone. You know what an evangelifish is? It's this little blob that floats here and there in the sea. It's got no brain. It's got no spine. Okay. It's got, and it's got no mouth. It just goes wherever the tides go. That's evangelifish today. They're just wherever the tides are taking me, that's where I go. In fact, they don't even talk because they're a blob. We got enough of evangelifish in Christianity. We got enough of woolly pulley, uh, just. Uh, Weak, weak Christianity of this nation. We need men and women who are going to make a stand and stand up for Christ. We make disciples by sharing the good news through friendships and outreach style evangelism. You know, friendship evangelism is actually the most successful, the most efficient type of evangelism that there is. You know, we, we you know, praise God for the likes of Billy Graham and things like that. But actually the best, most efficient form of evangelism is friendship evangelism. But we don't just want converts. We want disciples. Hallelujah. People that really understand Christianity and live it. And finally, we operate in our priestly function as a royal priesthood by praying for our local area, our nation, and praying in God's will into our economy, our government, and the religion of this nation. We take the initiative to pray God's rule and reign into our local parliaments and whatever. Okay, no one else is going to do it. It's up to us, all right? Now, what if your king, for example, is not really your kind of king? What if there's an emperor and he, 
He, he likes collecting Christians and putting them in, covering them in oil and then lighting them like a candle. And he has them lit up around when he's putting on uh, things for guests, okay? What would, you, would you pray for an emperor like that? No, but you should. And that's how Christianity won over Rome in the end. Because when they were being butchered and they were being persecuted and being marginalized, they prayed for the peace of Rome. They prayed for the prosperity of Rome. And you go, well, where's that in the Bible, Chris? I will tell you. Jeremiah 29 verse 7. Okay, God's punishing the Israelites because they've been naughty Jews. So now they've got to go off to Babylon. Okay, and this is what he says to them. And seek the peace of the city of Babylon. Babylon, the most antichrist regime on the earth. The enemy of Israel. Seek the peace of the city of Babylon where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its peace and well-being, you will have peace. Yeah, but, but God, you know, one of those guys killed my auntie, and I don't want to pray for them anymore. No, the Bible says, you pray for them. That's in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Timothy 2, 1 to 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, hallelujah, be made for all people. Not the ones you like, not the ones you don't like, not the ones that you're not really sure about where they're coming from. We pray for all people, hallelujah. Why? It says, and pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And there ain't much godliness, and there ain't much holiness going on in this nation. And the reason is, is because the church has stopped praying. We don't pray for local government. We don't pray for our local politicians. We don't pray for the king of this nation. We don't pray for the politics of this nation. And until we start to change and we start to take up this mantle and we do what's required of us, then we can repossess the land. Then we can see Christianity starting to flourish in his land. But unless we bend the knee and humble ourselves and seek the Lord our God and turn from our wicked ways, and until we do that, then he will not turn and he will not heal our land and he will not bring his goodness and kindness. Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord God, that we pray and we, we implore you, Lord. Lord, forgive us, Lord Jesus, where we have been indifferent, where we have just been too casual with what's going on in our world and around us and sleepwalking ourselves into the demise of our own society. Father, we are sorry that we haven't engaged, that we haven't prayed, that we haven't been politically involved in anything, Lord God. Lord, forgive us, your church, Lord Jesus. But I pray, Lord God, from this place of forgiveness, Lord, that your church will re-rise again strong over this nation, Lord Jesus. And we will see new government, where we will see, Lord God, the rule of Judeo-Christian law coming back into this nation again. And Lord, that you will turn this nation back from its crazy ways and bring it back, Lord, from a goat nation back to a sheep nation. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus, for his name, for his glory, for his kingdom, for his rule and honour. In Jesus' name we ask it. And all the saints said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.